0: Well, good evening. and Go ahead and take a seat. I know uh, many of us know this walking in here tonight, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong NBA basketball fan and specifically I'm a Laker fan. And you may have heard the news, you probably did already, that this afternoon uh, Kobe Bryant and his daughter died in a helicopter crash in California. And of course the, the whole sports world is, is in shock over this and um, and just you know, to have somebody who is as big a you know a big a figure in your life, even if you weren't particularly a fan, it's still just jarring because things like this remind you of just uh, how quick it can go, how everything can happen in just an instant. And certainly, I've been feeling that way this afternoon as a fan of his and as a again a, a Laker fan. Uh, And so in my opening prayer tonight, before I preach, I I do want to say a prayer for his wife and children that are left behind, and also ask that God would continue to bless us uh, in our series here. So uh, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of life. Uh, Your word says that in the long scheme of things, it is is like a mist, it's like a, a vapor. It's, it's easy in the busyness and the distraction of life to, to forget that. Sometimes it seems long. It seems as if we've got all the time in the world. And today's events remind us again that we don't. And so I, I want to pray, Father, for your immense comfort and peace to be brought to the family of Kobe Bryant. And I want to pray that you would bring people around his family that can bring your peace and comfort, that can deliver your word of solace. Because it is is your word that ultimately promises us that you're the resurrection and the life, and therefore the place where we can place our hope, the person and work that we can cling to. Father, as we continue on in our series through Revelation tonight, I ask that you would speak through my all-too-imperfect and and feeble lips to your people that you've gathered here tonight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in order for you to follow along on the screen, I just remembered I need the clicker. So um, tonight we are looking at Revelation again, of course, and we're in... Revelation chapter 13. And indeed, uh, things do uh, get, get weird in this section of Revelation. Not that any of it before was particularly uh, easy to understand or particularly normal sounding. You have so much imagery from the Old Testament and, and, uh, and imagery, frankly, that just is puzzling to us. And tonight is, is no exception to that. Um, One of the more common cliches and slogans that you have probably heard in your life is this one. God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for you. At least if you've been in the church for any length of time, probably somebody has said something like that or you've overheard it. this phrase is is used to emphasize that that we are creatures with with purpose, that we're not just sort of random space dust, meaningless pieces of cognizant junk just biding our time until we once again join up with the rest of the ether. Or perhaps the phrase is used to uh, comfort someone when something terrible happens, and it feels like There is no greater design to this. There's no, we can't fathom like why something happens. And so oftentimes almost a knee-jerk response is, well, God has a plan. And I understand why people say it. I don't know if that's always the most effective thing to say when someone is going through that. But that's a discussion for another time. But generally speaking, in I mean, it, the phrase is true. I mean, God is orchestrating events. Revelation is very clear about that, that like there is this sort of grand narrative of history that God has a purpose from beginning to end, and even if we can't see it, even if we don't understand it, it is in fact what Scripture says. That said, it's also true that at the same time, The devil has a plan for your life. If you were with us last week when we were introduced to this character known as the dragon, which we were told later on represents Satan or the devil, his plan for your life is to steal, kill, and destroy the people of God. Even if he knows he's already been defeated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which last week we saw, he knows he's a defeated foe. He is still planning and plotting how to bring as many down with him, with the little time he has left. And so tonight, through the, two, through the agency of two new characters we'll meet in chapter 13, that we'll call the sea beast and the land beast. The dragon, the devil, will create this unholy trinity, as it were, to try and do as much damage as he can. That's the picture for us. So first of all, what we're gonna see is Satan's plan is to raise up the powers of the world against God's church, against God's people. That's certainly the first part of this plan here. Look at verse one. And, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave uh, his power and his throne and great. We'll stop there. What on earth were the words I just read? What am I talking about? What is being described for us here? If we were to simply read this on its face, we would be mystified to even try and picture such a creature, this supposed beast. Thankfully, this this imagery isn't new in the biblical literature, and we are given clues as we look back at other passages of the Bible as to what this means. Because the imagery here originates in Daniel's prophecy in the Old Testament. There in chapter 7, we're told of, of various empires that will come upon the people of God and overtake them at times throughout their history. And these empires are are symbolized by these predatory animals and great horns. And without going too deep into the weeds, because we could, believe me, I mean, we could really go deep into the weeds here. It is clear from Daniel's prophecy uh, that what he was referencing was what would then, or at that time was future, but at the time John's writing, what he's referencing is the Roman Empire. This beast represents the Roman Empire, the empire that the church of the day is living under. Also, don't overlook the fact that we're told the beast comes rising out of the sea. That's significant because to the ancient audience, the sea, you can see this in the Old Testament almost anytime time it's referenced, is always associated with great evil and chaos. Remember back in Genesis 1, before God created the world, before God did anything, what did it say? The earth was formless and void, and the spirit was hovering above waters. The waters represented that which was formless and void, chaotic, evil. It was where Old Testament creatures like the Leviathan and the behemoth were to come from. Now, as the churches in Asia Minor would have been uh, situated near the sea, one scholar suggests picturing the great ships of Rome suddenly rising up over the horizon to conquer them and to demand their loyalty and praise to the emperor. That seems to be the picture that John is giving us. Rome is coming and they're going to overcome you. John will only add to that understanding as we continue reading verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Nearly everyone living in the Roman Empire of that day would have known what John was referencing here because not long before his writing here in Revelation... There we go. Not long before John wrote this book of Revelation, the great and terrible Emperor Nero had killed himself. And how did he do it? Well, he thrust a dagger into his neck mortal wound his head. It would have been assumed by most that when the emperor kills himself that your empire is in big trouble. That it might even be dying itself. But the reality was the Roman Empire bounced back from such a blow with relative ease. On top of this, we we know from various historians of the time, and this is really interesting, isn't it, that large portions of the population believed that either Nero was still alive or that he had come back from the dead and was raising up an army out of Parthia to come and overtake everyone and to start a new, horrible, cruel empire. So, So we put all this data together And it's pretty clear that John wants his readers to think of this sea beast as as something equivalent to the Roman Empire. And what will this great and terrible empire do? Well, pretty terrible things. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 40 years. Two months, 42 months is this figure always associated with, with a period of tribulation, of persecution, of difficulty. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth. Will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So let's just put everything together. The dragon from the last chapter is a defeated foe. He is. But that doesn't mean he's done fighting. And the way he'll fight the people of God throughout history and up until the end is he'll raise up nations and governments and mighty powers to persecute him. When we think about what happened in Rome's day, Rome would demand that you say Caesar is Lord, that you renounce your faith, and that certainly goes on in our world today. Now, I'm, I am, as I think some of you know, I am never one of those guys that uh, thinks America is going through some sort of persecution or anything, or thinks that Christians have it hard here. I still think Christians have it pretty good here in America. I don't have a persecution complex, but that doesn't mean it's not happening in other places all throughout the world. Look at what's happening in China as we speak, as people are being put in prison. North Korea, as we speak, and for many decades now, has put people in gulags for the rest of their life, or put them to death for refusing to bow to Kim Jong-un and his family's line. So unless we think it it couldn't happen to us, we ought not be so confident. It can happen anywhere, and this is the suggestion of Revelation 13. Remember, there's an already emphasis in Revelation where, where the people who are reading at the time, Asia Minor churches, can go... Oh, yeah, I see the symbolism here. We're kind of experiencing that. Remember, they were being persecuted, and they were told, just as John says here, to stand strong in the faith, to to make sure you remain steadfast. Well, in the same way, his church throughout all time is given the same charge because it's always been going on and will go on to the end. Only in the end, it will be all the more heightened. So that's the first part of Satan's plan for the church. He wants to attack it. And he's going to use the threatening military powers of the world to do it at points and in places throughout time. Secondly, his plan for your life is to deceive you. It's to deceive you. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. So the first one came out of the water. This one comes out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, remember, uh, we've seen pictures of a lamb before, the lamb who was slain, speaking on behalf of the people of God. And we identified that lamb as Jesus, the Son of God. But here, as so often is the case, the devil has a counterfeit lamb. He has a counterfeit Messiah-type figure here, but it speaks like a dragon. And what does it say? It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. By the way, that's not the first time that's happened. There was a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Elijah whom God gave the power to do such a thing. So this this Beast figure coming out of the earth is able to do some counterfeit type signs and wonders, miracles. Verse 13, it performs, or verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast, this land beast, is a false prophet who seems to be doing things only someone supernaturally empowered could do. And the beast seeks to convince you through his various powers and signs to try and deceive you into believing that the first beast really is worthy of your ultimate devotion. That's his goal. Now, again, in John's day, this is most certainly what the Roman imperial cult was doing all the time to try and convince people to give their allegiance to the emperor to say Caesar is Lord. They were trying to do what, I mean, basically what we think is like magic tricks, but they were doing signs to try and uh, impress the people. Now, here's the deal. I, I read this, and my tendency is to say, I wouldn't fall for that. I'd never fall for that. You know, I know magic when I see it. But you know, um, I don't know if you've actually ever really seen great magic done in front of you. It can be pretty convincing, folks. And I have to tell myself, like, oh, no, 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 it, it is magic. I have no idea how on earth they did it. I have a, I have a magician pastor friend. Yes, they exist. He might be the one. Pastor slash magician who does these amazing tricks in front of me and I'm sort of blown away by what I see. Nevertheless, I I go, but I would never fall for it if he's calling me to worship some other being, some other, or or a nation, or whatever it is. Like, there's no way I'll fall for that. But John knows better. John knows that we're prone to overconfidence, like Peter the night before or the night of jesus' arrest right before he was arrested peter looks around and says even if everybody abandons you jesus i got your back bro nothing will ever happen to you i got you and jesus is like well you're going to deny me 3 times but before the night ends peter sometimes the, the deception comes from our overconfidence like, oh no i would never i would never That's why John says this calls for the endurance of the saints. Thirdly, Satan's plan for your life is to marginalize and ostracize you. And I think the reason that the deception can work is because it's in tandem with this part. Because it's not merely just being deceived by signs, but it's also the difficulty of life if we don't accept what the beast tells us. If we don't accept what the world tells us we have to do, what we have to be devoted to, what we have to believe, there are consequences to it. Verse 15, And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would worship the image of the beast to be slain. So again, it's this seemingly supernatural, I mean, how can he do this unless God was with him kind of thing? Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, we do, I mean, this this does not have to be. I should say about the mark. This doesn't have to be a physical mark. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later. Although it was interesting, CNBC.com last week said, just had this, uh, this random news article. It was like, Amazon wants to make your hand into a credit card. And, then, and, and, and of course, immediately I'm like, hmm, one of the richest companies in the world with access to everyone's most intimate information. Ooh, that sounds interesting. It sounds a little sketchy. But I'm not a conspiracy theory guy like that. I'm, I'm, I'm really not. And so, I'm, you know, I'm just I'm aware of it. But, but do you see what he's doing? Do you see the strategy here? It is at one and the same time meant to deceive you, but also to ostracize and marginalize you. So now imagine how tough it can be to resist As a faithful Christian, you're forced underground, only able to buy food at extremely marked-up prices because you won't accept whatever this mark is. You have to go on the black market to get whatever you need because you refuse to take this sign. You're hungry. You're seen as suspicious everywhere you go for what you believe. You've fought the good fight for a while now, but you know, I mean, the guy is doing, the people are doing some pretty impressive signs. The longer it goes like this, the more hungry you get. It seems more and more reasonable that your rock-solid confidence that Jesus really is the one who you still aren't seeing just might start to waver a little bit. You gotta remember, in the first century, these Christians were absolutely convinced Jesus is coming any day, and yet the persecution is coming and the hardship is coming. And they're being more and more marginalized and ostracized. And all of a sudden it seems understandable that one might start to waver a little bit. So John concludes this chapter with an encouragement to his readers. This might be the first time you've ever heard this verse referred to as an encouragement. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Ooh. Those numbers they have such a space in our culture here they have gotten so much attention from people that talk about the end times and all the speculation that these numbers have caused of course they are not merely numbers that have caused speculation and intrigue in the church but beyond the church thus even heavy metal bands like iron maiden have whole songs written about it. You're welcome, Connor. <laughs> now, now, scholars and interpreters are not unanimous on their understanding of this number. They aren't. I mean, they, there's all sorts of debates. But here, on the one hand, if you use an ancient technique known as gematria, in which numbers corresponded to various Hebrew or Greek letters... The number 666 could calculate what John tells us to do here, calculate it. The title, Caesar, Nero. Or simply, it also could correspond to the word for the beast. Either one is possible. On the other hand, when we look at the use of numbers in the book of Revelation we see that whereas the number seven is the number of sort of divine completion all throughout the book, the number six is the number of imperfection and therefore meant to represent, as John also mentions here, look at it again, the number of men. Imperfection, incomplete, unrighteous. Either way, here's what I think John is doing by concluding with this statement. I think this is a subtle way of John bringing encouragement to the struggling and persecuted church. As he calls for them to persevere and to stand strong against all the odds, here's what he's saying to them. Remember, as powerful and imposing as these people may seem to be, they are only Humans. They're just people. He's just a man. Chuck Colson, in his book, Who Speaks for God, tells of an interview he saw with Mike Wallace and a concentra- concentration camp survivor named Yahil Danur. De Niro was called to testify against Adolf Eichmann at the Nuremberg Trials, 18 years before Eichmann had sent De Niro away to Auschwitz to be gassed. This is what happened when De Niro came face-to-face with Eichmann in the courtroom. Quote, De Niro began to sob uncontrollably, then fainted, Collapsing in a heap on the floor as the presiding judicial officer pounded his gavel for order in the crowded courtroom. What happened? Was Denier overcome by hatred or fear? Horrible memories? Well, it wasn't any of that. Rather, as, as Denier explained to the interviewer, Mike Wallace, It was the fact that he realized all at once that Eichmann was not this godlike army officer that he had built him up to be in his head. And he wasn't this great monster that was unassailable. What he came to see and what caused him to fall in a heap in the courtroom was, this is someone just like me. He's just an ordinary man. Indeed, as as you face the struggles... And temptations of this world in your life today, whether we're living in the last days now or whether they're a thousand years from now, we all are still facing the dragon's many ways of trying to get us off track and trying to deceive us and trying to make us feel like we can't keep going. And when that happens, John wants his church, you and I, to remember that even the greatest of rulers are still simply just ordinary men. Yes, they might be given power from the dragon and from the beast, but the dragon and the beast are ultimately defeated foes. Yes, the devil may have a plan for your life, but God's plan will ultimately prevail because you have Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven and earth, at his side, interceding on your behalf right now. Right now. And it never stops. Just as Jesus declared to Peter on the same night that Peter would betray him. Saying, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, Peter. But I prayed for you to endure. He does the same for us. Yes, the dragon desires to sift you like wheat but he's praying for us. He's interceding on our behalf. Jesus Christ has taken all of your sins from you and declared you to be forgiven and therefore fit for a heavenly kingdom that will far surpass any kingdom of this world, no matter how mighty and powerful those kingdoms may be. And in the end, that is why Jesus can promise to you and to me that the gates of hell cannot, cannot prevail against his church we'll stop there more on that next week as we move on to chapter 14 let's pray Father we thank you that ultimately that promise the gates of hell will not prevail against the church is a promise for us individually and corporately Oh, how easy it is to become overwhelmed with the struggles and the temptations and the